Let me teach you how to eat. Let me teach you how to eat. How to marinate the meat. Let me teach you how to eat. It's Welcome to the Hot Stove Society show on Cairo. It's Chef Tom Douglas. And Chef Terry Roach. You're all the chef in the hat. It's so fun to be here. Pamela, our producer, is here. Sean, whoop, whoop. our technical director, is here. Annie's in the kitchen. We have an audience of Dave, did you say? David. David. We have an audience of David and Kathy and I don't know you, young man. Eric. Eric is here, too. So congratulations on being the, the ruling the roost here at the Hot Stove Society kitchen. I know, at least we have people in the audience. Wow. <laughs> We're coming to you from the beautiful Hotel Andra in downtown Seattle, 4th and Virginia, right above Lola, across the street from our uh, delicious little Dahlia Bakery and Sirius Pie, up the hill from Seatown and Etta's. And, you know, we were just... Uh, have you been out to the Totem Lake? Uh, yes. Serious not, Pie yet? Not to the Serious Pie. Oh, that's the thank you, sir. That's you know what? I've been simply to, fantastic. I've been to Tolerum Lake once, and that was about three, four weeks ago. I picked up some food. We were going to visit some friends, and listen. <laughs> this is getting worse by the second. No, no, no. Listen, I, I saw, I saw the. Re- you just opened that week. I mean, come on, who goes that to is a- four months ago? Yeah, exactly. You said four weeks ago. Oh, well, four months ago. Well, never oh. mind. It's like four months ago. <laughs> but time goes by. Yes, it does. But in reality, I was. I picked up food at. Um, Mamnoon's uh, sister oh, yeah. restaurant, yeah. and uh, it was all garnishes because we were going to someone's house and they uh, made the uh, Friendsgiving. Friendsgiving, that's what it was. <laughs> so that's how long ago it was. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's a, it's a fun place. Check out on the east side. And it looks uh, good. And your, your restaurant. I am learning really my good. different paths over to the east side. Whether it's up through Bothell Kenmore area, or whether it's five twenty, or all the way up to Linwood and back down four hundred five. Right, right. Lots of ways to get from Ballard to the east side. Of course, you're listening to us on Cairo. Thanks for joining today. Uh, we uh, are live. If you ever want to look in on the show as we tape, we're live on YouTube Live, uh, or you can go to your favorite podcast app and listen to us anytime you choose. Uh, we are so happy to be part of your food-loving life. Remember, when you do buy a ticket at hotstovesociety.com for our class, it comes with breakfast. Yeah. It's not just 25 bucks. It's 25 And, and coffee. And coffee. is $25. And cold water. And too funny guy to look and, at. <laughs> exactly. Eye candy. Yeah, that's what people say about me. Uh, we've True. got a robust lineup of topics today. The gentle grace of cooking in Donabi bowls. Uh, I want to challenge that a little bit because sometimes, um, you know, one of my favorite dishes is up at monsoon up on capitol hill and they do that caramelized catfish where they actually have to get this pretty hot to get that caramelization so i'll be curious so you're saying it's not gentle and graceful it can be (laughs) or it can be it it can be more aggressive more aggressive yeah it's not quite as aggressive as like say a korean stone pot or something like that but uh it's time to prepare candy citrus fruits god the market is loaded i know you you did our orange tasting last week or our citrus tasting and I went after that and just bought tons of different things. Oh, good. Yeah. So it was super tasty. I'm a blood orange fan when it comes to citrus. Yeah. Blood if you've orange never is tried good. them or you're scared of them because they look like blood, uh, don't. They're good. They're acidic. I'm a fan of uh, my mother's in law, fresh clementine from her garden. Oh, <laughs> she lives that in would LA. be wonderful. Kathy just went down and brought back some. And then there's also uh, the debate over pairing wine and chocolate. And we're going to. Loop Pamela into this. She has done both. She has sold wine. She has made chocolate. She's brewed beer in her career. So, and there was uh, a time where they all touch each other. So, <laughs> and she loves champagne. So, there's lots of opportunity here to talk about what the heck goes with chocolate. 
Uh, vegetable butchery techniques. You, I talked about this on last week's show a little bit about, like, I hate cubed vegetables. So. That really resonated with me, so uh, that's why I had it. it. First of all, you don't hate it, you just don't do it well, and that's, I don't, I that's understandable. It. I hate it. I hate it. That's I don't, very I hate, understandable. I hate cubed hash browns. I hate cubed cucumbers. I hate cubed anything. I hate cubed bread cubes. <laughs> I like torn. I like the torn. So let's talk about how to make your vegetables real purdy. You run out of knives? Real purdy. <laughs> Creating crave-worthy burnt end briskets for Edda's Barbecue. It's been fun to kind of get into the low and slow mode out at the Ballard Warehouse dock. fee five fo fum with Chef Annie. And lastly, we're going to play our Rub With Love Food for Thought Tasty Trivia Challenge. Uh, the Rub With Love Tasty Trivia is brought to you by Rub With Love Spice Rubs and Sauces and the zingiest toasted chalad mustard you're going to ever find. Let's first talk Taste of the Week. My Taste of the Week is those lovely little... Have you ever had finger lime? I have, and we had the figure... I, I like the finger limes better than I like that Buddha's hand Buddha that we hand. had during the citrus tasting yeah. because it's, it's plucky. You know, it's got yeah. a pop to it, right. each of the little segments. I really love, I really love them for the... The, exactly for that reason, the yeah. squeeze, the, the pop you get from it, but more importantly, the brightness you get from those little pops. Is mm-hmm. so, it's like little, it's like lime caviar, if you wanted to describe it as right. a, for somebody who's never seen it. It's a, it's a little pod size of a finger. It's black, and then you cut it in half, and inside is all those little beads, you know, those little pearls. Yeah. And each one of them is very intense on a limey kind of flavor, really delicate flavor. So it's a very cool, again, Kathy was down at her mother. Uh, in Los Angeles, and she has a bush of, of those uh, pods, and uh, she brought some back up. I just love them. I think they're so cool for last-minute uh, finishing. I guess the closest thing in my mind is like pomegranate seeds. You know how you can, you right. can open the pod and get, you know, Same open kind the, of concept. But do you use them in the same way when you use them? I don't juice them. I just use them as a finishing product. So like when I get a little bite in my salad, it pops in oh, my yeah. mouth. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You, keep it, you keep it as is, mm-hmm. and uh, you can use it on a piece of fish, steamed fish, you know, like you could do a little beurre blanc, put them in the beurre blanc the last minute and put that over the fish. And then you have this wonderful little limey kind of citrus with a little grated ginger. It's mm-hmm. popping, as they say. And then uh, in a vinaigrette situation, it's also really good with a little rice vinegar. Uh, you put some, uh, some of that lime and uh, just a little bit of oil, olive oil or vegetable oil. Mm-hmm. But you have this wonderful pop. So if you're using it <coughs> like with endives, or something of that nature that has big crunch, like gem lettuce or, you know, some big heavy lettuce. Not heavy, but crunchy. Mm-hmm. It's a really delicious, nice combination. Pops up really nicely. Little tarragon in there. Bingo. I haven't a little... seen them in the marketplace here, have you? Start watching, Maya. You can get them. Okay, I'm driving you can buy them. You can buy them online. Uh, they usually come frozen online. And they, fr- by the way, they freeze really well. I put them in the freezer myself. Uh, they freeze really well. And when you want one, you just That's pop them up. That's a good up. tip. Yeah, it's a very good, because it doesn't break down uh, like you would, a citrus, another citrus would break down, but that doesn't actually break down when you come out of the freezer. So the bead stays. Uh, my taste of the week is, it's not so much a taste, but it's a anticipation of the week. <laughs> uh, you're going to Hawaii? <laughs> Towards the end of this week, uh, there is supposed to be announce, an announcement from the EPA, and you know if you've listened, listened to this show long enough that uh, we have been fighting Bristol for, for Bristol Bay and against the Pebble Mine for sure. a long time, 15 years now. And uh, there is supposed to be a major announcement at the end of this week that I'm looking forward to. But I thought they was already done. No. Oh, nothing's, no? Nothing's ever done. Oh, my God. When the there's end- trillions of um, dollars worth of gold and copper in the ground, nothing's 
ever done. It won't be ever done in our whole lifetime. But for now, uh, this announcement would suggest that we have bought some time. Moratorium I, on touching it? I'm not going to count my anti-mines before, before they hatch. But uh, yeah, coming up, we're going to talk candy citrus for our wintertime citrus applications. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Welcome back. It's time to talk citrus and candying citrus and why it is that when we always try to tell you to eat local that we're all cool with having citrus <laughs> this time of year. Well, just like we're cool having coffee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm Chef Tom Douglas. And I'm Terry Rotturo, the chef in the hat. Uh, Pamela, you have uh, suggested that we um, explore candying. I'm, I'm struggling with the candy citrus thing combination today. Uh, what is your interest? Well, I saw... Claudia Fleming, we've talked about her a couple times. She used to be a Gramercy, I think. Yeah. Gramercy Tavern. She's got greatest dessert. A couple of great books. Great out. books. Yeah. Um, and she's got an article trending now on candying kumquats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, her recommendation comes from the ease with which you can preserve them because of a lot of the other methods call for repeated boiling and rinsing, boiling and rinsing to get rid of some of the bitterness of the skins. Um, but she said with kumquats, not necessary. No. You can get them right into a simple syrup pretty quickly. Uh, and she had them sliced in beautiful wheels and uh, just easy, pretty preserve. But then right after that, I saw this um, article for an Afghan dish that is a lamb and rice dish. And you cook some of the rice with a candied orange syrup. Mm-hmm. And then you do some of the preserved peel that goes over the top, and it just looks like one of the brightest citrus-affected dishes that I've ever seen, and it gets topped with pistachio, so I just want it. There must be warmer spots in Afghanistan than what I'm thinking that there are, because some, like I was just reading, like it's 40... Five below in parts of Af- Afghanistan right now. Yeah, not, not too many is, orange trees. With, well, there is mountains. That's, I, yeah, that's I, it's yeah, that cold. I, I just didn't realize. Maybe it's greenhouses. I don't. I don't know where it comes from. But anyway, I love that kind of where you marry the the citrus, the candy citrus with dates or almonds or you yes. see that some Moroccan cooking sure, too, don't sure. you? And uh, I used to do a, a lemon uh, with rice vinegar and sugar or honey, it depends on the mood. And I would cook them very sliced lemon, and I would cook them very slowly, covered with parchment paper, and cook it very, very, very slowly for like two, three hours, till they were tender, and I would use the syrup to put in the rice with ginger, and I tell you, that, was, that rice was scrumptious. So That's what to, I want. Yeah, go back you to get, your lemons for a second. I'm not understanding your process. So you slice lemon. Okay. You put them in a, in a liquid brine of... Oh, so you are putting them in something wet. Yeah. I thought you were ri- just baking them. No, no, rice vinegar a little water, and some honey or sugar. Okay. And then you cook that very, very slowly, but super slowly, no boiling. As a simmer, yeah. Very, very low boiling with parchment paper on top. I would cook that on top of the stove for a very long time. And then until it's totally caramelized and, you know, sweet and tender and the 
lemon is like tender to the to the tooth, and then I would use the broth, the the leftover of the syrup, and put that into a rice, and that was mm, with ginger. That was so delicious. You cook I'm a piece of fish that. and you put that on top of that, and I'm surprised that um, you know when I think of. French people as an aggregate, like as in a whole, I find like French people don't love my salmon rub when I talk to them locally because it's too sweet for them. I don't think of sweet and savory going in French cooking very often. Well, too sweet is definitely not as French, mm-hmm. but sweet and sour, that's, I think that's one thing. That, sweet and sour is. I, oh, yeah. I think, I think French people picked that up a long time ago from the Asian, mm-hmm. um, you know, moving towards, you know, the, the, the mist. When people start meeting and start going through culture crossing, uh, I think then the, the Chinese sweet and sour idea really was appealing to the French. I mean, the, we have many recipes that finishes with, that are sweet, let's say, caramel and vinegar. We have quite a few dishes like that, you know, so you use the sweet and sour of that nature. So where else in your cooking do you use candied fruits? And, uh, you know, for me, I'm a very simple candied fruit person. Uh, I don't even do the step where they often call for, like, taking the, your, your orange slice and blanching it first essentially and then uh cooking it off yeah, with the I'd, simple syrup i just go right into the simple syrup because to me i like the bitterness that right. comes from the pith me too uh and it's 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 often just too sweet when it's not bitter at all right yeah. and you also i mean you really dilute it a lot in flavor when you start boiling slices of orange or lemon mm-hmm. you lose a lot of that lemon and orange flavor you know it's not just the bitterness so um if you don't like the bitterness flavor of the orange just take your peel and with a knife, get rid of the white part of the pith on the skin. And then you have nothing but the skin. So take that skin and then confit that. Mm-hmm. You know, cook it slowly in a syrup of sugar. Then you'll have a beautiful flavor that will be cleaner. Kumquats, I think, is a beautiful fruit, uh, as uh, Pam was mentioning. Um, I'm a, I love kumquat. And kumquat do really well with spices as well. You know, oh, like that, yeah, crack, I hadn't thought crack, about that. But. Crack peppercorn and kumquat together. You know, in a syrup, it does really, really well. So now you have a very nice heat onto your uh, kumquat. So if you do like a braised shoulder lamb, you know, cook very slowly for like five hours until it totally melts down with all the carrots and the onions and the dates. And then you put all that um, kumquat on top of it at the last 15 minutes and you're cooking it. Divine. Divine. We just got our lamb uh, from, you know, we get a neighbor's lamb every year and just got it, so... Uh, I'm having these creeps over for dinner on uh, Saturday night. I'm looking forward to that. And, uh, oh, I already know what we're going to eat. I'm loving I'm, this. I, I'm thinking about uh, some lamb from our neighbors. You've got, to, you've got to make this lamb dish, the Afghan one. Oh, I do have to? Yeah. Okay. So where else? Um, I mean, I, I love candied citrus, but I love fruitcakes. Yeah. And I think I'm an, out, uh, I'm an outlier when it comes to fruitcakes. No. I like fruit cake. You too. do you? Jackie makes a fruit bar that I really like because it's it's a nice cake, but it's also half the amount. It's not doesn't have the density that a lot of fruit cakes have. Pamela and I had delicious panettone this year for Christmas from the Sicilian uh, Bona Bona Futura F U T U R A Bona Futura, and really good candied uh, blood orange in the fruit in the panettone. Mm. There's lots of ways to use it that yeah, it's aren't very, necessarily it's, that dense fruit cake. No, and I'm a, a big fan of the upside down orange or lemon cake. You know, you put the, you take all your lemon slices and your orange slices, then you put your batter on top, then you bake that way. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's kind of like it comes. Yeah, out I've got a recipe for that. Upside yeah. down caramelized. Oh, it's so delicious, and it's great for it's coffee cake or it's 
you know, dessert. So you can do it in several different ways. You don't even need the cake part if you just have some pie dough. <laughs> Honestly, uh, I, I'll line a saute pan with slices of blood orange and sprinkle sugar over top. Cook them just until the, the sugar melts. Right. Put your pot brise right on top of that. Bake it in the oven. True. And then when you turn it out, you've got these candied Ooh, orange voila, slices. Ta, ta, ta. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That orange tart to ten. Exactly. exactly. No, I mean, it's oh. a little whipped cream on top of that, and you're safe. Or a lot. Oh, a lot, yeah. Or a lot of Depends on how much. A few shows ago, Terry mentioned the method of getting Brussels sprout leaves off, and apparently one of our listeners would like to know more about that, Mr. Rotoro. Sure. And uh, Brussels sprouts, there's so many ways to cook them. That's, by the way, that's if you have enough time on your hand. And here's what I'll say about this. If you hate Brussels sprouts, listen in, because we're going to give you some ways that they're not just boiled mini cabbages that kind of stink. I haven't boiled a Brussels sprout in quite some Brussels time. beautiful Brussels sprout dishes now. <laughs> on Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97 for you. I feel you'll find the love is like the lovely lemon tree, lemon tree, very pretty, and the lemon flowery sweet, but the fruit of the poor lemon is impossible to eat, lemon tree, very pretty, and the lemon flowery sweet. Peace, please, bok choy, add a boy, cauliflower power and rutabaga joy. Turn up a turn up, slam a yam, beatbox, sing it out! Brussels sprout shop! Welcome back to the Hot Stove Society Show! Uh, a few weeks ago, Terry, you mentioned Brussels sprout leaves that, uh, that I don't really think that they took it the way that you thought about it. I th- you mentioned Brussels sprout leaves, like pulling them off. Yeah. Not necessarily the ones that you might throw away off the outside that are bruised. Oh, no, or, no, no. But you're just talking, once you get to your clean head, right. you start to pull them off. How do you achieve that? Somebody wants to know. So you cut the stem, you know, from the bottom, you cut the stem so it can loosen up the leaves. And then you take the leaves one by one, like you would on the head of lettuce. What do you mean? Oh, you, you don't core it. No. Or you, you do core you, it. You take the core out from you the do. bottom, and then you cut all those, those. That's the only way the leaves are going to come out. Yeah. So the leaves are coming out separated, and then you toss them in a bowl with a little bit of olive oil, salt, pepper, uh-huh. and then you throw them in a pan that's really hot. Mm-hmm. You can do that on the stove, or you can do it in the oven, 450 degrees, you throw them on a sheet pan, and then it's only, it takes only a few minutes, because it's not that long. The leaves are not very thick. Right. So within five minutes, you've got beautiful uh, rendered roasted uh, leaves. So you have to core it like an apple. Cause or I like tried a kind of cabbage. It. And um, I think maybe my Brussels sprouts were too small. Like, I, I wasted so much of well, the when vegetable to, trying to just get the leaves right. separated. So the first thing to do is to take your, your palm of your hand, press gently on the Brussels sprout so it can loosen it up. Then you mm, cut the stem. Pro tip. And the leaves comes up. The center core stays together. Just take a knife and cut it. I cut it in small thickness. So then it's the same as the leaf. So... The center does, the, the core of the Brussels sprout head does stay tight. Yeah, I was so going to say, it's not like a, a head of iceberg or something where you can right, bang it on right. the counter and the core will pop loose. Correct. Right. Correct. It's not that loose. It's tighter than that. So, but yes, in the center, you just take it and cut it in small pieces. So I think what he's saying is essentially you cut it the opposite direction. You continue to cut leaves like you might an artichoke. You continue to cut kind of leaves off the outside. Right. Just cut around. Uh, trying to core a Brussels sprout, especially a small one, would be a yeah, difficult no, task. Yeah, no, you don't. I don't do that. No. Well, that's what you said. That's why I'm curious. Well, coring, like, 
you take the head of the Brussels sprout, on the bottom is the core, right? Yes. So you cut that off flat. Right. Oh, okay. Now you loosen up the leaves. Okay. I thought you were taking it and kind of wedging that core out of each Brussels sprout. (laughs) That's, I think, what you thought too, right? Yeah. Yeah. She's she's going way too deep into this. (laughs) All right. So here's an easier version of that. Sure. You don't get the same beautiful leaf, but if you just use a mandolin, one of those sharp little uh, Japanese or Chinese style mandolins, you just simply grate the Brussels sprout core and all. Sure. Because it's slicing thin enough that the core cooks up just as fast. Watch your fingers. Yeah, Horizontally or vertically? It doesn't matter. You can take the head of it and go against it, but no, no, vertically. I would say just put the the bulbous head on the top, and then just take it all the way down to as far as I think as it would just you shred. Don't add fingers. It does shred. It it's does just, shred. It's, it's shredded Brussels sprout. You just get and shredded. it cooks in, in a minute. Yeah, right. You're just doing just like you would spinach, just a hot, quick yeah. saute. And this is when you get your pan really hot. You have an advantage to do that because it will give you a nice little char. So, Chef, here's a problem I have with Brussels sprouts is uh, I love them. And you go to restaurants, they're all over the place, right? Because right. we all have Brussels sprouts and Brussels sprouts to choose from for a winter vegetable. That's right. So often they are just soaked in some sort of meat fat, bacon fat. So often they are deep fried. They're taking like the goodness out of the vegetable. So uh, how would you take a Brussels sprout and kind of achieve that same glory, that caramelization, that deliciousness, salty. It's almost like a fried, a French fry, right? right the right. way they're serving them without all the sugary sauce on top. Well, first of all, don't put sugar. Second of all, reduce the fat amount <laughs> you're putting in it. And then you no, have a very, very... How do you very, get the crispy crunchy? Well, you need to have a very hot pan. And cast iron pan or, you know, we talked about different pan on the last show. Um, you know, you can just make sure your pan is really hot. That's the only way you're going to achieve a fast searing even with a little char on your green leaves. And if you don't put too much fat, it will be just a simple process that will get through. The, sh- the leaves are going to melt, and then you'll have that fat to be contending with it. Mm-hmm. But if you put a lot of fat, what you're doing is you're frying. You're not really doing that charring. You're more like frying. Deep frying, yeah. Yeah, and a lot of that fat's going to stay on it, which is not very appealing to me. Eating a green vegetable that's full of fat, to me, that's totally... Yeah. Not working. So, so my thought would be to take them, quarter them, right? Pop them, you know, toss them with a little bit of olive oil, toss them, put them in a five hundred degree oven, and right. give them the hardest roast that you can get. Sure. Until they caramelize, yeah. and then if you want the sweetness you get from that deep fried, and then having it uh, dressed, I would use something like saba, S A B A, which is sweet, yeah. plenty sweet, but it's also got a little acidity to it, and it's the uh, residue of vinegar grape must kind yeah. of vats and it is delicious and a simple healthy way to possibly get yeah. it's kind of like a sweet reduced instead of taking vinegar. those brussels sprouts and like making them almost like candied bacon <laughs> yeah deep frying brussels sprout is not i haven't had a good one yet that was like it's very popular not feeling like it was deep fried right you know it's like not i'm not interested in that mm. so if i'm gonna eat deep fried i'm definitely going for french fries so the other thing I would say if you want to get a nice crispy is that a quick steam, we quarter them, and a quick steam before you roast them. Right. To me, it's like broccoli rabe doesn't roast really well without being blanched yeah. a little bit first. So instead of blanching and pouring off all the goodness in the blanching water, do a quick steam right. and then do that roasting. Yeah, because a lot of people do that. Like Eric was saying, my brother-in-law, who's here today, said he cooked Brussels sprouts last night, but he blanched them first. Mm-hmm. 
And I haven't done that method in a very, very long time, apart away from that, and just went straight roasting. Again, it's, uh, it's practice. You know, roasting is not, it's not very hard to do. The oven is the one that does most of the work. So, you know, you just have to remember halfway through to toss them around so they're not burning or not getting roasting on one side and not the other. So just toss them around. Make sure you make yourself a very hot oven and make sure you have the adequate deep pan to put them in so you can toss them around. But other than that, it's a very simple matter of, you know, just put them in a very hot oven for a few minutes, get them roasted, then take them out and then finish them. You know, make a vinaigrette on the side or something very simple that can go and really season your vegetable. All right, so other vegetables. Uh, Pamela has an interest in vegetable butchery, and I don't think people think about it very much, right? They, they are used to how their mom chopped the vegetables and how they always chops the vegetables. To me, it's a, it goes a long ways to making them visually more appealing, appealing right? It is by just adding a bias to most of your vegetable cuts. Sure. So, for agree, example, on a carrot, right? I cut a carrot lengthwise, either in half or in quarters, lengthwise. And then I cut out a bias when I cut the chunks so that I have these kind of diamond-shaped carrots rather than just a round slice straight across the carrot. Sure. No, absolutely. It's a, it's a more beautiful presentation for mm-hmm. sure. The cooking part <coughs> is very similar. Yeah, it doesn't you know, the change, only, yeah. The only thing is when you cut in bias, you have an edge that's thinner at the end on both ends. So you're going to have a little charring, which most people are looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. Other than that, it's, it's a beautiful presentation, and it changes. It varies. You know, and they have those, those knives, and you can buy those. I don't know what you call them. It's like almost like a peeler knife. You can buy in any, um, like a wajimaya or whatever, and then you can go through your vegetables and your carrots and everything, and it will cut like long string or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's, like a, it's like a peeler that makes the cut. What, that reminds me of those, the, the old French cut green beans. Yeah. Remember the little slicer yeah. for yeah. the green yeah. beans? I thought I was so fancy when Did we you? were yeah. eating those. They called them Frenched. The, yeah, they were French. Frenched down yeah. The, yeah. It's the goofiest thing. I know. Those are just thin little... They taste better. They take up the butter better. Well, that's what tastes <laughs> They better. just take more butter. That's <laughs> what it is. More, <laughs> they take more butter <laughs> in the cavity. Right. Yeah. Any no. other vegetables? We only have a minute. Any other vegetables that you can think of that really benefit from a different way of slicing them? Well, I think any hard vegetable, like you mentioned carrot, but like celery, mm-hmm. uh, cucumbers, like when you're making a salad, mm-hmm. I think there's a big difference between julienne cucumber, diced cucumber, mm-hmm. or sliced cucumber. You know, it's a, there's a difference in the marination. Or the hot thing right now is smashed cucumber, right? What? Yes. Yeah, it's very Chinese, and it's, you just take it and you smash it like with a meat hammer. Or some way or another, and then let it marinate in the dressing, and it soaks up the dressing. So Annie does yeah. a beautiful smashed cucumber salad. It's very oh, hip right now. It's yeah. very I don't know hip. that. Oh, I need to. Fight. Wow, I yeah. lost on that trend. Yeah. But of course, if Annie does it, you know it's hip. Of course. Yeah. Annie being the chef here at the Hot Stove Society. We don't have time to find out um, why you hate cubes so yeah, much, no. but um, I'm going to revisit this at a future show. <laughs> <laughs> I need to go into your... I know. It's the Pepperidge Farm Syndrome. It's oh. not a big deal. It's like, it looks like it came out of a bag, is what, is what okay, I'm saying. Okay, Okay, we only, covered it. Never mind. Nothing, I thought uh, it was do your lousy with your knife skill. Let's make some burnt ends when we come back on Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show. I am so sick of eating Brussels sprouts, Brussels sprouts. I mean, I can only scarf so much down, so much down. I'd even settle for some sauerkraut, sauerkraut. Want me to eat healthy? So how about some broccoli? I am so 
so sick of eating Brussels sprouts, Brussels sprouts. I mean, I can only starve so much down, so much down. Not even settle for some sauerkraut, sauerkraut. Want me to eat healthy, so how about some broccoli? Oh, oh, oh. Welcome back to the Hot Stove Society Show. That was Chef Terry being the audience motivator. You do that so well, Chef. Well, you know, when people, you have 500 people watching you, you yeah. got to motivate them. Seems to when me you have five, will, you should do two. We'll follow anyone in a chapeau. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Follow and and the, a scarf. Follow you look, the leader. He's, on a, dashing. he's wearing a hat. Yeah. Uh, burnt ends. You know, we've opened uh, Etta's uh, Big Mountain Barbecue down in the Pike Place Market area where my yes. old Etta's... Uh, was this, the restaurant itself was named after my daughter Loretta? That was her nickname. Sure. So some twenty-seven or eight years ago, and uh, been playing around with it, uh, enjoying it. We put some smokers on the dock. We, we've owned them. We had them up at Brave Horse uh, before this, so we right. just have them on the dock out at Ballard. Uh, I love that smell when I come to work at the dock in the morning. Um, uh, just I can see the chimneys going, and it's just such a, a fun, beautiful thing. I was one of the original investors in Jack's Barbecue, so I got uh, a bug there. Years ago, I was uh, asked to be a judge at the Jack Daniels World Barbecue Invitational. I remember that, yeah. Which is kind of what got our salmon rub started, our, our line of salmon rubs. One of the things that we, when we were designing Etta's, the current version, is that we wanted a Northwest take on it, a Northwest flair. Because Jack's does a beautiful job with Texas-style oh, barbecue, yeah. right? And there's, there's Soul Barbecue in town. Uh, there's Chinatown Barbecue, which is when I first moved to Seattle in 77 was you had Willie's House of Soul, I believe, uh, and Chinatown Barbecue right. Windows. And right. those were the two styles of barbecue in town. So at Edda's, we tried to kind of add a Northwest flair. And we're still kind of defining that, even internally. Doesn't mean you're using lots of seafood? Uh, it means we're, we're adding more seafood as we go. We had shrimp on the menu and, of course, salmon. But uh, we're putting on uh, barbecued oysters, and we're just kind of re- refining the menu as we go. But there are s- certain basic things that people want when they see the term barbecue. We're struggling a little bit with people coming in with a preconceived notion of exactly what should be on the menu. Yes, and I, that's, I imagine uh, that yeah. is happening. And, no, and this is an age-long thing for me. I always try to put twist on things. And yet people just want they want what they want when it comes to barbecue. It's very hard to be an innovator when you go into an institution. Yeah. And it's very, very hard because you're faced with the reality of why is it an institution? Why is barbecue called, you know, you, to, any Americans knows what barbecue means to them. Right. Like you said, it's a preconceived idea. I mean, if you tell me barbecue, I'm thinking smoky and I'm thinking meat. I'm not thinking fish. I'm thinking meat. And I'm thinking something that's been uh, that's going to be tender to the teeth, you know, when I'm eating it. So either the tip, you know, tri tip, whatever, whatever piece of meat that's going to be, or something on the bone yeah. that's going to be falling off the bone with lather most of the time with sauce. Which, by the way, that barbecue sauce, it definitely has a spectrum of great to not so great. <clears throat> I think in you know many places, you you, the stuff you buy on the grocery shelf. Yeah, or yeah. then you find in some. You know, in some barbecue places, they use to what I call, what I think is cheap barbecue sauce. As in, it's not very well conceived. It's sugar and, you know, I mean, you can taste the yeah. sugar and the vinegar, whatever. It's very simply done. But so, when I was in, when I discovered barbecue for me as a, as a foreigner, the first time I discovered it was a trip through Casey, uh, Kansas City. And um, 
it was really incredible to go through five different barbecue places, which were real barbecue places, and to see the differences. See, right there is where we. Right there is where you get off the track, though, right? What, oh, for that region, I mean. For real, I understand, but that's your impression right. of what real Kansas City barbecue is, right? Well, that's what they were claiming. I mean, I, I, I understand. Not the one you don't that. know, right? And I didn't know when I first went there <laughs> yeah. either what real Kansas City is. Turns out, real Kansas City barbecue, at least from the dozen places that I tried, are very different than the dozen places of Texas barbecue oh, definitely that I tried in Lockhart in that area, the barbecue belt of Texas. Right. Very different than Dreamland in Alabama, where you've been. Uh, uh, and very different than uh, the pig's pit in North Carolina, right? right so right. Uh, it's just a barbecue. There is preconceived notion, it's regional. but there's a natural regional, regionality to it. So anyway, getting back to my story, I was trying to create a little bit more of a Northwest regional flair on it. And I've been some, you know, a little bit successful, a little bit not. But uh, the reason I brought that up was that this, this segment that Pam put in here was about burnt ends. Right. You know, in barbecue... I have never seen burnt ends referred to as brisket. To me, the burnt ends are always the rib tips off of a rack of correct, ribs. Correct, correct. Ah. Uh, but burnt ends, you can, they can be whatever you want them to be, right? They could be the little crispy bits at the end of a brisket that's been in the, on the smoke for 12 hours. Yeah, but, I guess um, that's true. It could be anything, anything that's a burnt Traditionally, they're off the pork rack, the full spare rib rack. Right. So, uh, and we don't have burnt ends in that way, right? Right. And we take, uh, we do have cooked brisket, uh, but we shave it and then put it on a brisket, a smoked brisket sandwich, right? Which is not something you would find anywhere else. And we do it partially over applewood, partially over hickory, because applewood is too sappy for the long smoke, right? But nobody in Texas is using applewood right. on their brisket, right? It's all post oak. So it's interesting how you try to be something a little bit different, and yet. People want to put you in a box as soon as you use a term. And it happened with pizza, too. When I first started Serious Pie, yeah. I get all these pizzas sent back to the kitchen because they're burnt. And I look at the pizzas, and they haven't even tasted them. Yeah. Visually, to the customer, they were burnt. <laughs> to me, they were beautifully black-boiled caramelizations. Right. right. But we had to change our style, or else we were just making, you know, we were getting these terrible reviews and blah, blah, blah. Next thing you know, we, we take some of that char off visually and we're considered one of the best pizzas in america so it's it's just a funny thing so we're dealing with some of that down at uh Etta's big mountain barbecue as we establish our style but let's go back to burnt so ends what do you yeah, do, I what do, you do how, with how the burnt end well we we don't burn any ends we smoke and right. they, what ends up being what i think pam is referring to are the crispy bits because a brisket is in one end of the brisket it's six inches deep yes uh and the other end of the brisket it's an inch and a half deep right Correct. and so uh, unless you're cooking them separately, you end up with darker bits on the end of the on some of them. And of course, it's a 12-hour smoke, so you end up with this crispy edge or or this dark edge on the outside. Right. But it's the, generally, from a burnt end perspective, the entire outside is your burnt end. Right. Right. Because it's all got the same amount of cooking time on it. I love that outside. I also love it. Uh, you know. Down at Jack's, you can get the fatty nose, which is that kind of mound on top of the brisket. <laughs> yeah. But I love that marbleized fatty nose. And God. I have never heard that it term. Makes, when I, well, it's called the nose of the brisket, but it makes you feel like you're going to die. Because yeah. it's so well, marbled. Well, one slice is good enough. It's like egg. egg yeah, uh, wagyu. exactly. It's like Wagyu A6. You don't need a pound of it. You just have one slice and done. So good. Yeah, it's really good. And it's, you get pastrami it's sometimes. Pastrami's fatty like that. Right. It's the same brisket, right? So I think can, it's what it's supposed to be originally. You know, I'm sure originally 
they were not taking the fat off the cap. You know, because why would you? You know, it's like... Well, yeah, even in Texas, they trim the outside fat, but that fat in between the nose and the flat of right. a brisket, they never trim that out. Right. And that's all there and cooks down. And when you slice it, you can see the juice just running out of the brisket from that fat line that's right through the middle of the brisket. We just had breakfast. I'm still hungry. <laughs> <laughs> but barbecue is like, you know, it's like burgers or pizza or something. Yeah. It's very communal and very competitive. When people come in, they want to know, are you the best barbecue in the city? Or are you, you know, the best brisket? Or what? It's, so so it's the, the sauce must be a challenge, too. The sauce a little bit less. Like sauce in Kansas City is very important. Sauce right. in Texas is jar Tabasco. Right. So it's very, it's very different. And that's, um, that's just the way it is. Can't anyway, wait. it's been super fun. Can't wait to visit Big yeah. Mountain. Edda's Big Mountain Barbecue. Edda's Big Mountain Barbecue up on the north end of the Pike Place Market. Right next to Seatown. Right uh, next to Seatown. corner now is back alive. And uh, yesterday I was down there and we're putting in an, a to-go oyster window. Oh, fine. In the oh, summertime wow. we have these people that just want a cup of chowder or they just want a half dozen oysters to take yeah, over yeah. to the park. And they have to end up in the queue for the regular restaurant. So oh, now cool we're putting is that? in a little window. I don't know. We're going to find out how cool that is. Uh, up next, uh, Hot Stove Society Director Annie Elmore is going to talk about homemade pho. Because I don't know about you, Chef, but I have never made it. I've never made pho either. Yeah. All right. We're going to learn how on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Can't see that couldn't be me. I'd have to talk about your yams and your big fat hams. It excites me so because I know you're my meat. Fat and forty, but lordy, you're my meat. I got a hankering. I'm trying to get my tummy right with some rice noodles in some beef broth, basil in the mint leaves, drown in the hoisin sauce. When you want it, not really much to say. We eat a big bowl and go smell like it all day. Bean sprouts with a pinch of little lime got me feeling kind of fresh. Thinking about the next. Time. We are back for hour number two of the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo, coming to you from downtown Seattle, Fourth of Virginia. The Hotel Andra is our home. And we are upstairs on the mez uh, in the back. Come visit us. Come check out our le- cookbook lending library. All the things that we do here are classes. Speaking good. of classes, uh, Chef Annie is here. Yes. And she is the director here at the Hot Stove. And she's going to teach us how to make pho. You and I both said in the last segment that we have never made pho before. I feel like virgin putty right now. Yeah. I'm going to soak it all in. I'm going to listen. And then I'm going to recreate. And if it doesn't come out... I'm going to raise some hell. Well, we know, we know. If, if it doesn't come out, you too can take a class at the Hot Stove Society yes, from Chef Honey. There you go. What a good idea. By the way, that's a very popular class. She's overbooked already. So, Well, that means you have to add a second. When is your class? February 11th. Is it? Oh, it's 18th. 18th. Yeah. Uh, check out thehotstove.com and you can uh, sign up for Annie's Fug class. Anyway, let's just tell them how to make it for free. They don't have to come to class. No, uh, no we can't no, do no. that. Come on. Step up to the mic here, Missy. Teach Terry and I how to make pho. It's kind of like chicken noodle soup for every grandma's, right? Mm-hmm. Like everyone have their own spices and stuff like that. Uh, so the three traditional spices that you want to add into your pho broth uh, is cinnamon, star anise, and cloves. Those are the only three that you need, and that's the base. And then beyond that is what your mom, your grandma, whoever, you know, like, built onto that recipe. Mm-hmm. I use my mom and then additional to what I've learned in the Western um, kitchen of using a lot more warm spices. So I, I love fennel. 
And I feel like Fennel and Star and East go really well together. Coriander seeds, of course, you know. I just put one small thing of allspice in there, too, in my... Uh, I think allspice and beef goes really well together, but you don't want it too much to overpower. But just a little bit of that in there. It like, like one berry kind of yeah, a little bit? Yeah, one berry, yeah. Okay. I would say one berry to one gallon of water. Okay. Some people even add a whole nutmeg in there, but I think that gets a little bit too strong. Um, but you can, and of course, I've uh, never used a whole nutmeg in anything. No, and I've yeah. used nut- I, I love the nutmeg. Same one in my yeah. cupboard for I 10 love years. nutmeg, but, yeah, I, but I like I... to grit it. Okay, so we're in like a seven quart pot on the stove. Yeah, and uh, you said chicken. Are you making chicken pho or, or we, isn't traditional beef? Well, I'm making beef, but I also give people. Um, a chicken, a chicken for yeah. yeah for yeah. an option, but if you were gonna do chicken, I usually love to use either whole or drumsticks mm-hmm. because the drumsticks has a lot of gelatinous mm-hmm. in yeah. it, so it, it helps. Yeah. yeah, so it makes the broth a lot richer yeah. and also chicken a lot cheaper too. Right? too. Oh yeah, chicken feet chicken is feet great too, but it's also cheap as well. And you got a lot of meat in there. You don't have to pick so much. And you can cook a little bit longer ra- rather than chicken breast because you don't really yeah. cook it long enough to extract out all the flavor from the chicken. Yeah, plus, chicken breast doesn't give you as much flavor either. Yeah. Okay, we got to keep the process. So we're on the stove. We're in a seven-quart pot. We've mm-hmm. got a chicken or beef bones in there filled mm-hmm. with water, mm-hmm. all the spices you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Then what? So... Also, for the bones, I'm very particular in what bones I use in my faux broth. Uh, I like to use beef ribs. So it's the ribs from the ribeye as opposed to knuckle bones. It doesn't have a lot of fat and flavor in there, I don't think. But I like that fat on my pho broth. Mm -hmm. That's where the money is because I remember growing up going to a restaurant and eat. My family would always ask for additional bowl of fat, beef fat <laughs> in the broth to pour it onto that it's fog. It's impossible. You are your size. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, we have to ask for that. And then, for me, if there's no fat in my pho broth, I will not eat it. Like, oh. my lips have to feel like I just put on a whole chapstick yeah. on my lips. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's like, it reminds me of that uh, Princess Bride. Inconceivable! <laughs> <laughs> it kind of reminds me of the first time I had uh, a ramen uh, soup in... Uh, Kumimoto in Japan. Mm-hmm. They were amazed I wanted to eat that. I was like, that's the first thing I wanted to eat. Mm-hmm. It, it had that layer of like, mm-hmm. like emulsified foie, mm-hmm. not foie, fat on top. That was so delicious. Yep. And I'm not, a, I, I, you know, I'm not as much crazy on just fat like that, you know, in, in terms of eating it. But that was absolutely magnificent. All right. So we've cooked our broth for what, eight hours? Um, that already the depends. Beef. Like, if you were to use knuckle bones, yes, you want to cook a lot longer because uh-huh. they are a lot bigger and it takes a lot longer too. But for beef uh, ribs, you only have to do for two, three hours. Okay. Now what? So for the beef ribs, it costs a little bit more and it has more meat on it, right? You want to take it out before it really falls apart. And then you can use that meat and you scrape it off from the bones and you use that meat for your pho. Lovely. And then um, I usually cook Make the broth with the onions, whole onions. Make sure you keep the cap on top so that way the uh, layers of the onions don't fall in there. Ginger uh, for two to three hours. Hold on. Can you re-explain that? The cap of the onion? What do you mean by that? Yeah, like where at the top, the core. So you cut your onion in half? The root. No, no. The root. You want to keep it whole. Whole onion. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then you cook that for two, three hours. If you were to use, you know, rib bones, then the last hour you want to put in the sachet of the spices because you don't want to cook it from the beginning. You right. get too strong, right? right? So the last 45 minutes to an hour, that's when you add in the sachet of your spices. Then you can take it out after all everything's done, and then there you go. You got your pho. Right. So now you got a hot bowl. Mm-hmm. You put your blanched rice noodles in the bowl. Mm-hmm. And then what else do you like to put into the bowl? Because that, to me, I love... People don't understand composed soups in that way, where you're putting in raw ingredients and letting the broth cook that. Yeah, so if it, at home, I put my bean sprouts down first, then my blanched noodles, which only 30 seconds, then really... The broth have to be boiling hot. Mm-hmm. Pour it on green onion, cilantro, meat, and then on the side, you know, like uh, cilantro, not cilantro, but Thai basil. Uh, uh, Thai basil, yeah, and um, you know all the sauces, the hoisin, the sriracha. So you do like to doctor your it up a little bit with some of that. Uh, yeah, I yeah. definitely, yeah, definitely, you have to. And do you use the <laughs> but, lime and the jalapeno too? Oh yeah. oh yeah, but I like to sip my broth first before I add in everything else because the broth is what the money is, right? right? Everything else is just additional flavor. So if the broth doesn't taste good, then I don't. I'm gonna add a lot more hoisin and sriracha to kind of make that taste <laughs> go away. <laughs> Give it some character. That would, so you're, you're gonna teach people how to make fun, then how to doctor it up when they mess it up. <laughs> yeah. I love that. <laughs> All right, thank you, Annie, for thank teaching you so us much. how to make yeah. fun. Chef, are we going to do this? Absolutely. All right, I can't wait. Uh, when we come back, we're going to cook in a Danabe pot. Uh, my you. daughter gave me one, and I, I, uh, it's still sitting on my counter, and I have to, I have to do it. You got to stop putting pennies it. in it. I've used it once. <laughs> on Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, ninety-seven three FM. Uh-huh. Oh, my, oh my, my, we're gonna hit the first spot, gonna get fucked high like la la, ah ooh la la, we cop a can of Thai tea at the Viet Wah, or oh boy, some yayo soy, if you don't want boat, then get the ganoi, a couple of squirts of that sriracha sauce, make it nicely spicy, have you feeling like a boss? All right, it's time to cook in our our Danabe pot right here at the hot stove. I'm Chef Tom Douglas. And Terry Rotero, the chef in the hat. Thanks, you all, for joining us today. It's been a fun show so far. Annie made me very hungry with her description of making that broth. You notice, if I hadn't stopped her, she would have made the, the whole segment would have been just on her broth. Right. And I think that's the point. If you get the broth perfect. Totally the point. Yeah, the, the rest. Yeah. Uh, is but just not rest, superfluous, but it's the broth is really The rest key. is an add-on. Yeah. But definitely the base is the broth. Okay, Pamela. Um, I have a Danabe pot in my house that my daughter gave me. It's big, though. You uh, put this in the show because I believe you would like to own one. <laughs> in fact, that is true because uh, what I've been reading about it is they cook differently than metal pans because of the thick clay walls. Mm-hmm. So it's known for slow cooking usually, although the enthusiasts say you can use it for everything, you know, frying and stuff. But I do love braised things that make a nice, rich broth. And uh, the 
custom is that the whole pot comes to the table as a centerpiece for the family or your guests to ladle from. So that seems very communal and comforting to well, me. Well, very timely for the weather we're having and yes. all that stuff. It's uh, definitely that kind of time of year where one pot dish sounds really delicious. Mm-hmm. And um, the, yeah, the, the recipe that caught my attention was... Uh, ginger rice with beef, shiitake mushrooms, carrots, scallions, and snap peas. Yeah. And that just sounded like satisfying on with so many With the scallion and the snap peas at the end. Levels. With the scallion and the snap peas at the end. At the end, so you had some brightness. So you have some nice crunchy and brightness of green mixed with that nice little stew. Um, All I can think about when I think of stews like this is the same idea of the Moroccan tagine, you know, where you, have, you put something in a dish... You put everything in the dish, and then you walk away. You cover it. You put it gently on the fire, and then you walk away, and you come back five hours later. Beautiful meal. Voila. So if you were to go out to the ID today and try and get a Danabi pot on your table at one of the restaurants, I haven't seen too many that actually serve it up that way, and I think partially because in a commercial restaurant kitchen, you only have a certain amount of burners, and to go low and slow on a Danabi pot, I mean, I bet you could achieve some of the same thing if you pop it in the oven at... 250 or 300 and get that low and slow boil like you would in a Dutch oven, uh, which is essentially what they are. They're, they mimic, or the Dutch oven's probably mimic I these. Was say, <laughs> I was going to say, the Dutch after these. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, but essentially, that's what they are. Uh, the place that I've had it the most, where it comes actually in the pot, is the catfish at uh, Monsoon up on Capitol Hill. Yeah. Oh. Uh, and they do a nice caramelized like a hot, pot kind of idea. hot pot idea, yeah, yeah. Uh, but in one of these Danabi-style bowls. And it is really delicious. And it, does, it accomplishes exactly what you want, what you're craving, which is that, and what you're talking about, Chef, which is just that all the juices from all the parts that are in there come together and yeah. are just kind of unctuous and delicious. And, you know, there is some thought that you had thought that maybe the clay imparts some flavors to this. Some people this. believe that it, it does. And well, I think, I think that it must takes... be a different kind of pot, don't you think? Because yeah. these, these particular Denabis that we have in front of us are glazed, and I don't know how that would offer. Well, but I like, bet some of the older versions... Um, right, like Le Creuset pots that we have at home does take a little bit of a patina after a while. You, know, uh-huh. you, you do have... It's never staying white, white. You know, eventually it turns into a a darker color a little bit and like a blonde color on the bottom. You do have a little patina and a little flavor that's left in there, but it's definitely faint compared to if you had a cast iron pan, for example, that would be a little bit porous and, you know, get all that flavor in there and keep it in there. That's a little bit different of a, of a thing. But more importantly, I think it's a great idea because they make them beautiful to put on the table, you know, and it's a great dish to to go from the stove, from the oven, all the way up onto the table, and everybody serve themselves. So it's, a, it's cool. Yeah. So this recipe that you've picked out, um, you take the rice and you, you strain it, right? You, or not strain it, uh, you rinse it, uh, and you put it in, and you actually are putting it in with lentils. I know. Something that's I a, hadn't really thought much about. I like that combo. Yeah. At the same time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And then in the separate pan, you're, they're actually caramelizing onions and then adding it to the tanabe pot. So it takes the the same amount of time to cook the rice as it does the lentil. Interesting. And probably the onions, uh, pretty much. Wow. uh, With cinnamon and allspice. And then cover the the nabe with with a lid and make sure there's a hole in it, like (coughs) they all do, to release steam. Right. Uh, And it's, um, like I said, unctuous or umami in nature. 
when it comes to no the No vegetable on top of that? Uh, this one in particular you could do with, uh, they have different versions, uh, mussels and Chinese sausage, you know, which is that sweet pork sausage right? Uh, that uh, usually has a little bit of star anise in it. Uh, Donabi ginger rice is cooked with beef and vegetables, uh, more of a baked rice dish than a brothy dish. Right. But I've only had it with broth. I mean, when we had it at home, I, we had wedges of Napa cabbage, and uh, we used the dried shiitakes that are kind of, they get kind of spongy, and right. when they rehydrate, they're spongy and add a whole different texture to a dish than, say, a fresh shiitake dice. Uh, so you, you can do anything. Right. Just like a tagine, you can do anything in it. <clears throat> One uh, thing you could do is make a nice chuchuca out of that. You could uh, do uh, your, nice what? your baked eggs into oh. that pan. <laughs> I'm thinking of the eggs because of our discussion earlier. But you could do some nice baked, pan, ba- baked eggs out of that pan. Uh-huh. You know, you just put the eggs, you put the cream, spinach on the bottom. You put your eggs, your cream, you cover it up and you put it in the oven at 350 and you'll have... Wonderful baked egg within 15 minutes. Yeah. It'd be a nice dish to make for Valentine's Day, too, for, for two, to oh, yeah. eat together from a nice steamy pot, yeah. brothy pot. They come in all different sizes. Uh, if, you, if you want to be careful to get the right one for you, think about how many people you cook for and how often. Right. So, for example, ours is four to six people. That's a, that's a big meal. We don't often that's use it. That's a commitment. It. Whereas if it was just two, uh, you might use it much more often. Right. And, and you could also think about if that's the case, you could get two of them if you, so that when you do have four people, you just put two pots on correct, the table. Correct, correct. Share between four people. Yeah, I know yeah. that's true. But like yeah. Sean said, um, the way we use them here at Hot Stove the most is to keep the uh, handmade tortillas warm. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. Well, they're particularly, I mean, that's what yeah. they're good at is that gentle heat. True. So if you remember to get them in the oven and get them warmed up, and then you put your beautiful tortillas that in. Makes, that makes complete sense to me. I mean, that's really nice. That's a well, good in idea. In a funny way, the effort you put in the homemade tortillas, they deserve a beautful pot like, like this that. rather than a little yeah. plastic uh I know. Uh, Mitt or... Yeah. I know all, all of our friends in Prosser put a, their tortillas in those little handmade mitts. Yeah. They're so pretty. Uh-huh. But this is another another nice, elegant vessel. Yeah. yeah. I, no, I think different. this is a, a more beautiful way to serve tortillas. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely you up the game a little Don't bit. Don't forget to put a cloth in there with them, though, because tortillas want to steam when they're tight together like that. They're hot. They go in hot, and they want to steam together. That's part of the cooking process. Right. But they will drop water onto the bottom, and your bottom tortillas will be soggy if you don't put some sort of little uh, towel or tea good, towel. Or good trick of the trade, chef. Cocktail napkin. Boy, or the something. pro tips today just keep on coming. Hey, <laughs> that's why you're listening. That's why you're listening to the Hot Stove Society Radio Show. It's Valentine's Day coming up here, and the tradition is wine and chocolate. But should it be? We're going to discuss. That. We're going to have that discussion when we come back on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. Scrambled eggs all over my face. What is a boy to do? Now let me see if I understand you. The problem I think you said. Oh my. And maybe I'm often misconstrued. But babe, I'll never pull your leg. Mercy. Just don't know what to do. Because the salads and scrambled Da-da-da, 
It's Valentine's Day right here on the Hot Stove Society Show. Chef in the Chapeau, your wife is here. What a lovely Valentine's Day. I know. That is. Your Valentine. My Valentine is with me. Pam's going to have to be my Valentine or Sean. Sean, would you be my Valentine? Yeah. Sean just begrudgingly shook his head. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Whatever you say, Tom. Uh, There's a lot of misnomers about chocolate and wine. And uh, we, we go back on this conversation many years, not only in our company, but because you used to uh, work at De Laurentiis in the wine shop. You used to be a Theo Chocolate. You're still a shareholder. And she was part of that craze uh, when we started to install and telling Americans that wine and chocolate yeah. is a good thing. And then also, I remember over the years when we, you were at Red Hook Brewery, we did some beer dinners and tried to figure out what goes best with chocolate from a beer standpoint. So... Where do you stand now on wine and chocolate? <laughs> 20 years later, where, where do you stand? 40 years later. <laughs> no oh. yeah. I, f- I forgot about the beer element, but frankly, I think beer is a little friendlier to chocolate than wine. So what's your Over reasoning? Over my okay. career, the demand for having wine and chocolate together on Valentine's Day just keeps growing. It right. doesn't go away. And I think both substances bring people so much pleasure that they want to put them together because you associate them with a lovely time. Mm -hmm. And both have elements in them that raise your spirits. Yeah. Quite literally, right? Quite literally, I think if you're already convinced it's going to work, that's three-quarters of the job. (laughs) Three-quarters of the job. So technically, let's talk about why it might not be true. People want it with red wine usually, and they immediately go to thoughts of big Cabernets, yeah. for instance. But Cabernets usually have had time in wood, and those heavy tannins are an enemy of the fats uh, in chocolate. So if you have something that is especially uh, a chocolate that is higher in cacao content, a dark, a dark chocolate... Um, it has acids of its own, and then if you put it together with a really tannic red wine, you, your mouth is just going to dry out into... It just wants to fight, yeah. It just wants to fight into yeah. the dusty Sahara. Which, uh-huh. to some, might look like it's a match. Yes, yes. Because people keep insisting on it, so I, I'm sure some people are convinced that's a good match, somehow. So I, I think it's our job yeah. uh, to try to lead him to a more pleasurable combination. The, so the first thing would be if you want a, a red wine, go with a, a softer right. grape variety. Like a Gamay or something? A Gamay, even a, a Merlot, uh, something that is, hasn't been so, had not, so much time so, in wood. Right, not so high tannin. And not so high tannin. And that grape, Cabernet, just naturally right. is, is high in tannin. And then there is the idea of port which is a sweeter wine, you know, which doesn't have the tannin like Young Cab or, you know, wine of that nature, which is... Port's support. a classic. Yeah, port is a classic, but yeah, but it's the, there's a reason for that. It's why it's sweet, a classic. sweet and sweet. Correct. And no tannin, which is, or no high tannin, especially if you take an older port. If you take a 30-year-old port, and um, for all of you out there who are not sure about port... $150 for a 30, 40-year bottle of port on the market is the cheapest wine you can possibly wine and you can buy because it's been aging for 35 years and it's only 150 bucks compared to a 
20 or $30 bottle of wine than you buy today from today. So to me, I think the value is in the aging, and it also is in the beauty of the port not being so high on tannin. The acids have come down. So it's a beautiful match to a chocolate. It's also a fortified wine, so it's a little hotter in a right. funny way. Right. Uh, it's 20% alcohol compared to 12 to 13% or 14 with high-end cabs. So it's a little hotter and a little more be able to cut through. Because when you eat chocolate, right, there's fat on your palate. So right. much fat. Yeah. But uh, you bring up an excellent point. That whole family of fortified wines, I think one of the best pairings I ever had was with a Madeira. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think the Madeira, the Oloroso, Sherry's um, would be a wonderful direction to go, especially if you were just having it as an after-dinner treat of mm-hmm. that little fortified. <clears throat> there is a fortified wine called Pinot de Charente. Yes. Which also is a good match with some chocolate, not all chocolate. Which, which strength of chocolate would you go for uh, with 52% that? 52% cacao. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's pretty I light. Would, I, wouldn't go, I wouldn't go 70. That's not as good of a match because, you know, you have to remember as you go up in chocolate, uh, in cocoa uh, percentage, it really changes the profile. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's much stronger, much more bitter. There's all those different flavors that get accentuated that it becomes harder to match. And the 72% cacao is a really hard match to a wine. So uh, when you think about champagne and chocolate, oftentimes people are celebratory and they want to get a bottle of champagne. Would you go with a demi-sec? Yes. Uh, so that it's got a little sweetness to go with the sweet chocolate? Yes. Okay. And a half they... bottle is perfect. <laughs> Honestly, really for two, is. it is. Yeah. yeah. I found a, a, a wonderful reference on the Italy site, actually, that has a great pairing guide and they started with uh, white chocolate which I've I know Tom Douglas likes a little white chocolate I don't mind a little white chocolate chocolate. feels trashy good to me Uh, and their suggestion was Riesling uh, Moscato Diasti and Sweet Rosés that sounds perfect no Vincento working no working up to milk chocolates Pinot Noir light Pinot Noirs Uh Merlots and Gewurztraminer yeah, I can see. I can see that. Yeah, and uh, dark chocolate. So they're about matching intensities: Zinfandel, Cabernet, and Merlot, but staying below seventy percent. Because if you get up right. into the seventy-five and eighty, the chocolate tannins take over. And then there were. Um, you also have to think about a lot. Oh, people are going to have chocolates with inclusions, or right. their caramels, or. Um, and nuts or whatever. Nuts. Yeah. Yeah. So that influences what you would want to. And they had a brilliant pairing um, with a hazelnut chocolate, which is a nut I really love. And, of course, Nutella is the biggest selling chocolate <laughs> yeah. nut in I the love, world. Yeah. yeah, I love hazelnut chocolate. That's <laughs> They're cool. made for each other. And so they suggest a wine from that region, Brachetto, uh, an huh. under-recognized Red, often a little frizzante. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that with a hazelnut chocolate. Well, that's what I remember. The frizzante, I think, is interesting there because that's what I remember when we were talking beer dinners was that the frizzante of the beer or the frizzante of Moscato de Asti or of champagne uh, works towards breaking up some of that uh, fat on your palate from the chocolate. The other one that I love is a good analogy to that is Seattle Chocolates makes their, I think they call it their champagne flavored chocolate or something like that but it's got a little bit of those uh crushed i'm guessing zots you know that 
the candy that explodes in your mouth a oh, little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got little crystallized pieces of that in in this little truffle, and I love it. It's a super what? super fun. Have you ever had that? No, I'm but go it, like, it does break sounds, up the chocolate. That sounds good. That sounds yeah. fun. Yeah. Cognac, you know, uh, oh, brandy, spirit. brandy, especially again, older brandy. If you can find older brandy, that's usually a a good match with a very rich cocoa holder. So if you have seventy percent plus. I think it's something to you eat your chocolate That's and you take brilliant. a light sip of very old cognac. And when I say cognac, it can be old brandy. Yeah. Old uh, de vie sure you could of do, uh, pear. Yeah, you could, yeah, pear old de vie with some hazelnut chocolate. Oh. That would be good. Oh, oh. I was going to say. <laughs> I'm not sure what just happened there, but. <laughs> oh, something happened. delicious. Something happened. That brown liquors, I, I've been known to have a little sip of bourbon. A little piece of yeah, chocolate. Yeah, I mean, bourbon is a really? good example. Bourbon is a good example of, you know, when you use chocolate that are high on cocoa, again, that's, that's a good, that's, I think that's a good match. It's got a light, almost like a smokiness to it that I think it's light enough to be able to marry with that Now, chocolate. that is counterintuitive after what you just said about the oak barrels, because all bourbon is aged in oak barrels. I know, but it's the higher alcohol content. Okay. Right. So the moral of the story, I think, is don't just read a book or you go out and do some of these taste tests on your own because every palate is different. Yeah. yeah. And uh, there is no right or wrong. There is just, if you really do love somebody, you'll, yeah. you'll do the, do the work, do the homework, you'll do the research. Look at Fran's site. She's got so many beauty. She couldn't come today, uh, but Fran's, uh, our beloved Seattle Chocolate Institution, yeah. has some incredible Valentine's Day offerings. You know, one of the saddest things about my mother passing is that I used to always go down to Fran's and buy her yeah. chocolates. And now I have no one to buy chocolates for. Oh, I know because your wife isn't a chocolate. She fan. doesn't do chocolate. My daughter's <laughs> allergic to it. So, <laughs> yeah, oh, I mean, Sean. Oh, Sean, Sean is going to get my. Yeah. That's right. Sean's yeah. going to get my chocolate. I love that. Sean has not forgotten. You is Valentine. <laughs> Dear Sean. <laughs> Uh, it's time for Food for Thought Tasty Trivia brought to you by Rub with Love Spice Rubs when we come back on the Hot Stove Society Show 97.3 FM. Okay, we're back in the hot stove kitchen here. It's time for the wrap up our show with our our famous food for thought tasty trivia challenge brought to you by Rub with Love Spice Rubs and Sauces. They're versatile. Uh, they provide distinguished layers of flavor to any meal. You just go through each week and just change the adjectives. Yeah. <laughs> Rub with Love can be purchased around the Puget Sound area at stores like Wajamaya, Bartell Drugs, or Metropolitan Markets, plus many more. And also across the country, please visit. Atkinson's in Sun Valley, Idaho, Irvine Ranch Market in Los Angeles, or Central Market Stores with 10 locations in the Dallas, Houston, San Antonio markets of Texas. Yeehaw! Yeehaw! All right, Pamela, uh, how do you play the game? Uh, and then Terry's going to introduce 
Our third contestant, I guess Annie Elmore was too afraid to come on. Oh, after, yeah. yeah. So, Punishing. Uh, Punishing. We actually have some brave volunteers to take us on today, and Terry is going to introduce them after you tell us how to play so the game. So our contestant today will be, I take my radio voice, we have my lovely wife, Kathy Rotiro. Woohoo! Honey, welcome. It's Thank Valentine. You. It's Valentine. And then a brother, Eric Ansel, is here. Hello, Eric. Hello, Terry. This is so cute. This is very cute. We have brother and sister against... You and I, Tom. No, no contest. Yeah, right. I'm not sure which way that is exactly. Goes. <laughs> so each of the three parties is going to get five questions related to food, and then we're going to see which of the team of the competitors gets the most right. And David, our guest out here, our, our only guest today, is going to win a three pack of his Yay! choice from our gift shop over of spice rubs and sauces and cookbooks and. Yay, blah, blah, blah. David! Let's start with you, Chef in the Hat. Here you go. What does the French term agri dolce refer to? Well, first of all, that's actually Italian. Thank you very much. But I'll go with that. It means, a, uh, in French, it's agri doux, which is sweet and sour. Agri doux. Well, that is embarrassing. So you get two that's points a burn. for that. What is the aperitif Bellini from Harry's Bar in Venice made from? Champagne. Yes. Oh, I'm going to go with... Um, the classic fruit is what peach. I'm looking Exactly. Double right. How much milk is in a cafe? A lot. Macchiato. There is no milk in cafe macchiato. It's foam. And if you want it wet, you just ask them what level of wetness you want. That's when they add the steamed milk. Uh, the foam would be from milk, though. Yeah, it would be. Uh, the foam is from milk, but it's not... Milk as in poor milk. It's a form. I said it. Mm-hmm. Point okay, five. Wife, oh. wife, what do you say? That's a oh. no-go. I say that's a no-go. All right, all right, all right. Fine, you take the A dollop of foam. You notice Kathy would not go against you. Though, so. <laughs> all right, number four. Name some ingredients in the North African sauce, chermoula. I know it's a favorite of yours. Parsley, mint, onion, or shallots, mm-hmm. and uh, lemon. Mm-hmm. All... Cilantro would be one that you often oh, yeah, see too, but I like leading with parsley. That would be more my speed. Uh, and finally, please describe what a moussaka is. Eggplant and bechamel mm-hmm. and cheese. Beautifully done. Well, how'd you score? I thought that Four was a, out of five. I thought that was an antlered animal. <laughs> yeah, I, that's, that's what I was going to stop. marinated in sake. Oh my God, I just saw a moussaka go by. <laughs> All right, Kathy and Eric. All right. Ready for the challenge? Ready. Uh, one of Italy's greatest gifts to the world is Zabayon. What is it? It's a custard that's made stovetop. I think we'll take that. An ethereal dessert <laughs> of egg yolks, marsala, and sugar. <laughs> Yay! Yay. <laughs> um, I, I like what is Zinfandel? A red wine. Exactly. <laughs> uh, great. These guys are screaming into the lead. Uh, Wait a minute. They're only at two. <laughs> true or false? Turmeric is related to ginger. No. no it's, false. It's true. They are related. What is the name of the FDA-approved nonstick sheet that many people are using for baking? Siltat. Yes. Absolutely. Ooh. Good one, Kathy. And um, in culinary terms, what does it mean to reconstitute? That means you kind of revive it, you bring it back to its original consistency. By Usually with water. 
Adding a liquid. Yes. yes. <laughs> wow. Four to five. Nice job. Nice Four job. Four to five. We're so tied. We're tied. Oh, boy. Ooh, it's tense Tom, here. It's Tom, it's, tense. Your, it's your turn. Is this true or false? David, would you like to come up and help me? <laughs> <laughs> You're my lifeline today. Shout out. If he needs help, shout out and answer, David. Uh, true or false, purslane is a native succulent of India. Sure. That has become popular as a salad green in America because of its nutritional content. And also because it grows in the cracks of a sidewalk. (laughs) (laughs) True or false? True. True. Correct. Uh, Please describe the unique shape of a Parker House roll. The unique Uh, shape. The unique shape. Uh, Well, when I make them, so maybe everyone has their own unique shape, but I make them in a muffin tin. Yes. And it's got a th- like a little three lines. You put three balls of dough into the muffin tin, and it kind of blows up into like, I'm not sure what you call it. A crown. A clover? Or a, I would call it a clover. What do you call it? Clover? Uh, a clover. We were looking, uh, and you, I, you got there. You want that creasing effect yeah. in the top I, yeah. of it. So uh, we're giving you that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, thanks. Uh, what are, <laughs> what are so the generous. three flavors in Neapolitan ice cream, and what is the shape? Well, it reminds me of Neapolitan pizza. So it would no. be pepper, pepperoni, <laughs> cheese, and, uh, strawberry, vanilla, and chocolato. And? What, how would you, what shape would you expect to get it in? Uh, kind of a loaf shape. In a right? brick. So that it's in a layer. Did you grow up with those I individual abso- ones that were wrapped in your I want that. Yeah. Yeah. It was never, um, I was that a chocolate great. mint guy. Oh, really? Yeah, I was always a chocolate mint guy. Tuna is a member of the mackerel family, and there are many members. Name some other members of this mackerel family. Uh, skipjack would yep. be one. Uh, that Norwegian mackerel that I believe is that Norwegian that fatty mackerel that we buy at Saba. Saba, you know, yeah. uh, is it farm raised or not? I don't think so. I don't know either. It's it's super delicious. I love that. It's my yeah. favorite uh, at a sushi bar. It's also the cheapest, which is always a good combination when it's your yeah. favorite and the cheapest. Mm-hmm. But so, the other tunas besides but skipjack. herring, you know, anchovies uh, can be in that same family. Uh, all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But other types of tuna, like yeah, uh, other oh, tunas. So ahi, blue, big eye. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Albacore. Okay, I think that's a yes. He's got four so far. I you wanted okay, other species in there. No, is scarmoza a bread variety or a cheese? They smoked mozzarella. Yes, Today's five out of five. And you are buying David a three-pack of rub. Congratulations, David. Uh, <laughs> thanks all for joining us today. If you want to be part of the show, you can join the community on YouTube Live at Tom Douglas and Company. Uh, we're on Cairo Radio, as you know, and the show is produced by the fabulous Pamela Hinckley. Sean McFadden is our uh, technical editor, and our live editor, our, our content editor, is Sean Don't Call Me Del Torre. The show is uh, also remember, if you miss any episode of our Hot Stove Society show on Cairo, you can listen via podcast. Just subscribe with your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful Valentine's weekend. Absolutely. <laughs> Honey, something tells me.